as we begin, I just want to take a moment of silence, quiet our hearts before God, because I recognize that uh, we're looking at some family issues when we look at Joseph, and that digs up some things for all of us. And so I think we need to stop and say, God, what can you open what you have today? And I'm going to specifically say, let's all end in prayer with yes for it, as in we're welcoming what you have to bring today, God. So let's take some silence. Who you are today. 
when you consider that family of origin piece, how do you become who you are today? And as we've gone through this series, we're contending with, with one particular line, and uh, bringing in scripture to contend with this along the way from Pete Scazzaro, who says, it is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And this extends where we started last week when we were talking about knowing yourself. That is to say, if there are parts of us that we're hiding from God, we're not going to be uh, mature before God. We're hiding those things, especially when it comes to uh, our emotional health and who we are, because that's part of our God-given gifts. We can't hide those from God and expect God to do something with them if we're not willing to, to deal with those ourselves and hand them over. This week we extend that and we look back a little bit to go forward. We look back at, at how we became who we are in a sense, particularly looking at perhaps your family of origin and how that shaped who you are, but then asking the question, what does God want to do with me now? What does God still have to do? And so what we want to do is understand your past. So anything that needs to be redeemed can be redeemed by Jesus for your future. That's what we're doing today. And so if we look at family systems, I was looking at some of the psychology of this this week. There's some really interesting stuff. You can dissect this and dissect this. But the real simplest way to get about this when it talks to family and our family of origin, maybe this is your current family too, but the family of origin is what we're thinking about specifically, is the big giant swing from dysfunctional or functional, where you fall on that uh, spectrum from where you came from. And, and I think it's uh, helpful uh, to, to distinguish one of the key pieces that distinguishes dysfunctional from functional families is intimacy. That is, do we move towards intimacy or away from intimacy? Seems to be one of the primary distinguishing factors. So if you're on the dysfunctional side of things with a family, you would lack intimacy. It, it wouldn't be there. It wouldn't be spinning outwards away from that. And, and on the most dysfunctional side of things when it comes to family, you'd find anarchy, chaos, confusion, nobody's in charge in that family setting. If you step in just a little bit, a little towards functional from dysfunctional, you would start to get into maybe somebody is in charge, but is dictatorial in style, things are black or white, and it's not consequences you receive, but punishment you receive for what for transgressing those rules. On the dysfunctional side, because it's spinning away from intimacy, what you find on that side is that loyalty trumps loving relationships. Loyalty to the family name, basically, because that's about all you have to hold you together at that point. And in the dysfunctional side, you have conflict avoidance, or you have manipulation. If you love me, you would do X, Y, or Z. You have manipulation, you have constant fighting that can happen. All kinds of things can happen on the dysfunctional side. <coughs> Contrast that to the functional side, if you tend towards, if you go to that side of the spectrum, then there's flexibility, close relationships. A really key word, trust, exists there between people and the family. Parents are on the same team instead of pitted against one another. Uh, you work through conflict in healthy ways. You delight with one another, which is a real key part of intimacy. You enjoy being around each other and the family pulls inward. Now I point that out because it's important to recognize some of those details, but now as we dig into Joseph, we can put him on this spectrum in his family. And if we consider uh, Joseph, uh, we're gonna go to Genesis 50 in a moment. We're just gonna pick out one verse and then we'll skip to 1 Peter a little while to make heads or tails of all this. 
But if you consider Joseph, he comes at the very end of, of Genesis, it's the last quarter of the book of Genesis, is his whole story. But let's just pull back a little bit and let's ask the question of uh, looking for functional families at the beginning of the Bible in general in the book of Genesis. If you start with Adam and Eve, they transgress pretty quickly in their family. Uh, we're not given the full time frame, but once they eat the fruit, things go wrong. And then you go to their kids. Now, have we hit a functional family by the time we get to Cain and Abel? Well, now we got jealousy and then a murder that happens with Cain and Abel. So we haven't hit a functional family there. If you continue on, you get to Noah, a righteous man. He's describing things go pretty well for Noah as far as his righteousness and among his family until he, after the flood when he plants a vineyard and enjoys the fruit of the vineyard a bit too much. And then Ham, uh, one of his three sons, uh, ends up being cursed through that whole process. So you have a fairly functional family, but then they fall apart there, especially at the end. Abraham, lots of problems. Isaac, he seems like he's pretty good for the most part until he has kids. And then he got problems because one of his kids is the deceiver, for goodness sakes, Jacob. You've got lots of dysfunction. And dysfunctional families right there in the beginning of the Bible. And I want to point out some interesting things. God doesn't condone that dysfunction. He constantly tries to course correct and walks with them through all that difficulty. And walks with them to, to put things back to right throughout all of that. And so when we consider Joseph, we walk into... Yet another family that was having trouble. Joseph had these dreams, and they were God-given dreams. When he presents them to his family, they don't like that, because everybody's bowing down to Joseph, and he's the favored son by Jacob in the family. So the brothers have this jealousy towards Joseph. They don't like him. Uh, they end up trying to, and we heard this in the children's sermon, great job, Mike, I appreciate the, the synopsis that you gave, than what I'm going to do, but he was... Uh, his brothers wanted to kill him, but then one of them spoke up and said, hey, this might be a bad idea. Let's just sell him into slavery and say he died, as if that's a better idea, right? But they made money out of it somehow. Um, and so they sold him in. He's wrongfully accused then when he gets to Egypt, and he's achieved a high position in Potiphar's house. But then he's wrongfully accused of sexual assault, then he's in prison, then he's forgotten in prison. Finally, he's remembered. He achieves, in the end, probably something way higher than he ever could have achieved back home as being second in command in Egypt, it's a huge position that he gets. All this from all this wrong that went on before. And God was with him through the whole process. We're told that through the whole story. But, but then the difficulty comes. Because it looks like his past is behind him. And what happens? All of a sudden, the pain from his past comes to visit. The people that caused all this problem come to visit Joseph. And they need food. So let's start with the first thing we can say about Joseph and that he had a dysfunctional family, and he's the product of a dysfunctional family. And Joseph could have allowed his past to make him bitter, and he could have justified that bitterness and his anger and aimed towards his brothers. And frankly, if you read the story, his brothers probably would have been like, yeah, we kind of deserve that. That's kind of their expectation when they figure out who Joseph is and what he does. But what's interesting, if you go to uh, Genesis 50, verse 17. It'll come up on the screen. We'll start at 16, the second half. It says, Your father left these instructions before he died. His, his brothers say that. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. 
when their message came to him, Joseph wept. It doesn't specifically say that Joseph's brothers lied, but it kind of gives you the impression that Joseph's, uh, that Jacob didn't actually say this necessarily. They're operating out of fear in this moment. They seem to be trying to gain Joseph's favor. And you can see that their dysfunction is still operating on Joseph, even here. And you can also see, and I think this is important to notice, Joseph's response to all this, it's emotional. He weeps at all that's going on in this moment. And so I think it's important to recognize something that happens here that can happen in our own lives is that there may be lies and wounds in your past that will haunt your present. But those lies and wounds do not need to dictate your future. Joseph doesn't let him. He could have become a different product if he let those dictate his future, but he doesn't. But the other thing I want to point out about this is that they don't have to dictate his future. However, he doesn't have to deny the emotion either. Right? He, he weeps at this moment. He doesn't deny it. We don't want to deny the emotion of our past, of our hurts and lies that have wounded us. We want to hand them over to God for redemption, is what we want to do, so that God can work with those. <laughs> Joseph was the product of a dysfunctional family. But why did Joseph do so well in these circumstances? Because he had some pretty miserable experiences throughout his life. He recognizes God's hand in those, but he had some miserable experiences throughout his life. And one of the things that you can see as a thread through his whole life is, is those dreams from when he was a child. Joseph was given a glimpse at a bigger picture that God was working on. Joseph has, had some idea that God was doing something bigger than all the small things that were going on in Joseph's life, no matter how difficult some of those things were. But you have to recognize, Joseph himself didn't always even deal with those well. They're God-given dreams. But he doesn't present them to his brothers real well when he's a kid. Right? He kind of lacks some maturity in how to present those. There are times when he lacks that maturity. But we can also point something important out about that is that Joseph saw the bigger picture, and I think this is equally important. Joseph matured in life. And that matters. He learned to operate in faith. His brothers operated out of fear, we see. Some of them grew as well. You can see that in the story. But they're clearly operating in fear by the end. Joseph has, has seen the bigger picture, has now lived out the bigger picture, even with the heartache and the suffering that came with that. But he matured as he walked with God through that process. And Joseph chose a new path to walk, not simply letting who his family of origin was, his dis the dysfunction of that, impact him in a negative way, he forgave his brothers. He blessed future generations because he did that. Even us today, we benefit from that. That forgiveness is a supreme challenge with their wounds and lies from the past that we carry. Joseph's descendants, of course, this is why I want us to hear at the end of Genesis 15, uh, 50. Um, they move on, we get the story of why they're in Egypt, and God rescues them again in a bigger way. Joseph is a part of that story. He understood the big picture. He matured. He forgave. He models what is supposed to happen and what God is going to do. And in all that, he walked with God. He may have had his doubts. It's, the text doesn't give us a lot of impression of, 
of where those doubts may happen, but that's a normal part of faith, walking with God, that sometimes we wonder some days, we're human. But he still walked with God through all that happened. Now I want to turn to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You can find it, or it's going to be on the screen. And I really want to focus on verse 10, but let's read verse 9 first. It says, if you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness in his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In saying all that I am about this, I'm not saying that everybody comes from a dysfunctional family by any means. A lot of us come from functional families, some of us come from dysfunctional families, we come from all, all manner of Things. Some of us have a heavy burden to carry because of that. Some of us have a very light burden to carry. When it comes to heavy burden, we can have great joy in that. And some of us can have great sorrow in that. But we can all take something from what's going on here because there is something bigger going on. And Peter points to that here as he writes to the church. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. There are a lot of products on the shelves in stores and in our homes that are made from recycled materials. And that's a wonderful thing. Something can get a second life as a new thing, whether it's shoes or a water bottle or an iPad or whatever it is, that it gets a second life. But what Jesus actually offers us, or what God offers us through Jesus in a passage like this references, is not simply that we're uh, recycled material becoming something different, but we're offered throughout through Jesus a transformation into something new, into something that wasn't before. And 1 Peter is telling us this, that, that when we receive Jesus and follow Jesus as his disciple, transformation occurs and we're being made into something new. Much like the scripture uses gold being refined in the fire, there's something there that's the original, and yet at the same time it's made into something completely different. All the impurities refined out of it. The stuff that shouldn't be in there, taken away as it's made new. And that's what Jesus does with the church. When he creates an individual believer, the follower of Jesus Christ, he creates a people, too, and something new is created out of what was, out of the product that was there before. That is the product of all the experiences and everything that came from before. It also says, and of course these two lines, you can see them laid out, they go together. Once you're not a people, now you're a people. Once you have not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Sometimes this is a hard thing for us to do, I think, in our culture, to receive mercy. Or to expect that it could be offered, probably, is what we, should, we could say. In uh, about first grade, I was invited to a birthday party uh, for a kid at school who was, frankly, just mean to everybody. But he invited the whole class, and it was a roller skating party with an ice cream cake. So we all just kind of went. Anyway, it was a roller skating party with an ice cream cake. But I remember him going around to a number of people, and he's like, well, I invited you to my birthday party, so you need to invite me to yours. As a first grader, you're kind of going through the rules of the road thinking, well, is that how it works? Because I don't want him at my birthday party. But do I have to invite him? Because he invited me. First grader rules, you try to figure this out. I didn't invite him to any birthday parties. But, um, but there's something about that where I gave you something, you need to give me something. I did this, now you need to do this. Mercy doesn't work that way. Mercy is a relational issue where, where something is resolved or put right between two people. It's rescue from the consequences of judgment is what it is. Something should have gone bad, but it didn't go bad because you were plucked out from it. 
That's what mercy is. If you want a shorter hand way to say it, salvation would be what this is. Not the whole of salvation, but salvation is what that is. You're saved from the consequences of judgment. That's mercy. You can't earn it. It's given freely. And the transformation that we're offered through Jesus Christ to make us a new people and to give us mercy will have tangible results. It's what should happen. That's why the church exists, is because the people who have received mercy now make up the merciful body of Christ. But it's counterintuitive, mercy is, to our life experience. It's, it's counterintuitive and it's probably contradictory to our experience in most of the environments that we live in, work and school, uh, even in our families, sometimes in our home life, sometimes it can be counterproductive because if I didn't do it and didn't earn it, I shouldn't receive it, but that's not how mercy works. Mercy seems counterintuitive to that. Now, I'm getting to make a connection between all of this, so we're, we're getting there. But if we talked about who you are today, we looked at family of origin, Joseph, we talked about him and that he had a grasp of the bigger picture, he matured, he grew. Now we're talking about mercy. The next question we need to ask is, what does God still want to do with you? Does God still have plans for you to grow into something more than you are now? To be that new creation. And if we tie that to mercy, and I was reflecting on it this week that uh, the power of mercy. If you go to the second commandment, this will be on the screen. It talks about, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or in earth beneath, or in the waters below. It says, you shall not bow down to them, or worship them. And here's the key. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. A lot of people get stuck on that. They get stuck. Okay, God punishes us. But showing love, did you hear that? Showing love, and I say it once more, but showing love to how many generations? A thousand. That just means a lot. That just means way more than the other. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Joseph should have been, and so many of the dysfunctional people in Genesis and elsewhere in Scripture should have been stuck in a cycle of living out three or four generations worth of suffering for the parents' sins. And what that means, it doesn't mean God's like, you know what, your dad did something wrong, so now you get zits, you know, or something like that. It is, it's more of God withholds his hand and, allow, and, and doesn't hold back that which could get worse, is what it means. Your past shapes who you are. And some of those sins of the past whether we committed them or they were committed on us, could affect us as well. But God's mercy is the promise of release from those things. God's mercy is salvation from those things. God's mercy can release you from past, your past, to experience the joy of God's future and can do that even today. That's the power of God's mercy. We don't have to experience the three or four generations. But in a thousand generations of those who love the Lord. Once you were not a people, Peter writes, now what has God done? If you follow Jesus, you've been given a new family. You've been given a new family that didn't exist before, but now exists, and now you're entered into it to live into that family. Does that mean your old family doesn't exist? No, it means that you're living into the new family of God. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God has released you if you walk into that relationship with Jesus Christ and receive this transformation. God has released you from the sins and effects of those sins in the past to live into God's new future. In that new family. And God wants to apply that mercy in at least three directions. God wants us to apply it here. That that mercy is aimed directly at us from God through Jesus Christ, that salvation from all that is broken and wrong in our own lives and from our past, we can be given forgiveness through that mercy. God wants us, uh, God directs that and wants us to direct it to our past, not simply to us, but to where we were. For those things that we regret, those things that misshaped us in the past. It doesn't excuse bad behavior, but it can help us redeem it through Jesus Christ and make it right, even reconcile those broken relationships with the past. That's what God's mercy does. And God's mercy must be directed, if we've received it, towards others. That we should be giving it out like candy. Handing it out because if we've received it, we've experienced it, we recognize how good it really is when we hand it out to those who have it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. Jesus, meet us here today. Some of us want mercy, but we feel it is undeserved, far off, and never coming. Lord, direct your mercy at us right now. For those of us who do not know your healing and your salvation, we say yes, Lord. We say yes, Lord, right now. We want that. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. For our past, we ask for your work of redemption, even reconciliation. Begin to heal the wounds that we may bear and the weight we may carry. For some of us, this weight is light. For others, it seems unbearable. Walk with us and relieve our burden so that we may experience your salvation. Thank you for the joy that only you give. May that joy be ours today as we experience your mercy.